You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome back to another episode of The Spear. Uh, my guest on, on this episode is a uh, repeat guest. We, we spoke about uh, almost a year ago now, Major Tyson Walsh. Tyson, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. So in the previous, uh, the previous time we spoke and we recorded, you told a pretty incredible story, uh, frankly, uh, from a deployment to Afghanistan in 2013 um, when, when you find yourself engaged in in hand-to-hand combat. Um, it, it was, it really was a pretty incredible story. Uh, we also talked about your pretty unconventional path into the, into the army. You were a graduate of the Merchant Marine Academy, still, uh, the only Merchant Marine Academy graduate that we've featured on the spear. Um, this time you're going to share a story from 2010, I understand also in Afghanistan. Was that your first deployment? Uh, that's right, John. That was my first combat tour. Uh, but I did have a couple of operational tours, uh, is what they call them, uh, while I was at the Merchant Marine Academy. So that's why we get, we should get more, more folks on here. There's 34 Army um, active duty and National Guardsmen that are Kings Point graduates currently serving. And I'm sure they all have just phenomenal stories from all their walks of life. But while I was there, after your freshman year, you go out for about a minimum of three months, it can, it can go as long as six months in your first time out on the boats. Um, so that's right after freshman year. And uh, I chose to go with Military Sealift Command. And we went uh, straight out of, um, out of the Mediterranean into the Horn of Africa down the coast. And uh, we just hit all the countries from Somalia to Djibouti. And then we, we crossed over up to uh, the Arabian Peninsula. We hit up, you know, Bahrain, Fujara, all those. And then uh, another time out, I did, I did various Navy ships. Uh, even got to be on a submarine for a little bit, which was pretty, pretty awesome, USS West Virginia. Wow. So I'm not the yeah. only one. You know, the, the, these options, they, they happen every year for the midshipmen. And, um, you know, I had a pretty low-key experience, I think, during my time out at sea um, compared to, to combat tours in Afghanistan for sure. That's, but it, it's such an incredible opportunity. I mean, you're, you know, 19, 20 years old, um, after just one year at the Academy, it's, I don't think we do anything other service academies do anything like that. I mean, there are opportunities later, uh, in your time to go spend some time with an operational unit, uh, at, for West Point cadets, for instance, but three months after one year, 
it's, it's like I said, a pretty incredible opportunity. So what is it, what's it like when you show up, do they know you're, you're, uh, you know, you're a guy from the merchant Marine Academy and you've only been there one year. So they know that you're, um, a merchant Marine cadet and they get cadets from other uh, maritime institutions too. Like sometimes they'll get California maritime, especially if you go on the civilian ships, that's where they really get them. California maritime, um, Maine Maritime, Massachusetts, you know, SUNY Maritime, all of them, even Texas A&M. And uh, they, they know it's a well-established system, so they know exactly where you fit in, that you're learning, that you're going to be a licensed either deck officer, a mate, or a licensed engineering officer, which is what I eventually became. And um, it's very, it's again, it's just very well-established. Um, they, they very quickly put you into the seat of a an assistant to the assistant third engineer. So you're like a third lieutenant and um, it's, it's pretty cool. And so it really gave me an appreciation and understanding for what our soldiers go through when they're only 18, 19, 20 years old and they're, they're deploying to Kuwait, to Korea, to combat theaters. Um, you know, I, I went out, my first time out at sea was for just over four months. And the second time was just under nine months. And um, wow. And yeah, it was, it was a great experience. It was eye-opening. You see all different walks of life throughout the world, especially places like, you know, Djibouti and then go to Hong Kong and see the two just completely polar opposites in the world. And um, I don't know, when I, when I got to my first unit at Fort Carson with 166 Armor um, and I met some of the younger soldiers, you know, the PFCs and the specialists that had just come back from a deployment from whatever unit they'd just come from and showing up at Fort Carson, you know, I could really relate to them, them being so young and then having to go just to the far ends of the world to do, you know, our mission. It really, yeah, but, it really helped. It really helped establish that and, and get that rapport out there. For sure. That's a great point. Um, you, you know, last time we had you on, you described that you could, you could just, you could decide to commission into, a, you know, whatever service you wanted up until essentially, I think you said your final trimester um, at, so at this point, when you were on the submarine, were you thinking, maybe I want to go Navy, maybe I want to, you know, spend my time on a submarine. We had a, uh, a SEAL crew on there, a SEAL deployment team and, um, watching them do their kinetic operations, uh, and well, and not watching the kinetic part, but just watching them launch and then, you know, and then eventually go pick them back up or they, they find their way to a carrier group or something like that. Like just watching them operate. And then going back to a civilian merchant marine ship, it was such a polarizing experience to see what's out there and what, what I could possibly choose in my life uh, that I was just so attracted to the sexy, fast-paced, kinetic stuff um, that, that I eventually you know, landed on the Army and going infantry. Uh, so that, I mean, that, that really shaped my decision was going out to sea. Uh, I for sure, from the very first time out at sea, I, I definitely knew that I didn't want to be a sailor. That really cemented it in my mind. So, sure. you know, thankful for that too. So, uh, you, you, like you said, you chose the army. Uh, your first duty station was Fort Carson, uh, 166 Armor Battalion. Uh, what time did you, or when, when did you arrive at Carson? Uh, yes, I, I arrived uh, after my Follies at Ranger School, first attempt, uh, made it, you know, 60 plus days, but did not graduate with the tab, unfortunately, a couple times through Mountain's phase. 
Uh, showed up at Fort Carson in late, no, early, early July. I was going to say late June, but it was early July of 2009. And uh, immediately after after a really interesting engagement with the division commander who came and talked to all of us second lieutenants, he had us all in a room, General uh, Dave Perkins and Sergeant Major, Command Sergeant Major uh, Daly, um, Division, 4th ID Division Commander and CSM. They put all the second lieutenants in a room that were all straight out of Bullocks, mostly armor and infantry Bullock. And uh, they basically said, we've got a few tank platoons available that had just moved up from Fort Hood and are, and are filling for 1st Brigade 4th ID. And um, he like really put emphasis on, you know, armor platoon, tank platoon. And because of the bulk of the room were infantry lieutenants. And so uh, it was me and one other guy that went to 122 Infantry. And when he asked, you know, who wants a platoon today that's going to be an armor platoon? You know, he left out the infantry stuff. You know, me and him immediately stood up in the room. We were like, I do, sir. I want one right now. I'll take it. I don't care, you know, don't care what kind of platoon it is. Um, but that's how I ended up. That's how I wound up being an armor platoon leader at Fort Carson, like straight out of in-processing. I was extremely fortunate. And why did you, you know, why did you volunteer so vociferously just because you wanted to be guaranteed to get a platoon right away? Well, so they condition you, and rightfully so, at Fort Benning uh, out of, you know, I Bullock and then Ranger School. They tell you, like, you don't get your Ranger tab. Like, good luck, man. You're going to be on staff until you do. Or you might as well. I mean, some of them even say, I remember one of our, our um, Sergeant First Class, Jesse Underwood, he said, you might as well just get out of the Army. Because <laughs> he, he had a little <laughs> tongue-in-cheek there. He's not kidding. He's not kidding. It's, it's, it's a hard world for a, a tabless infantryman. Uh, on the officer side, for sure. Um, and so as soon as I, you know, just bright-eyed and bushy-tailed at Fort Carson, just excited to be at Fort Carson, and then the prospect of being a platoon leader, like, I'm, of course I'm going to jump on that. I would have taken I would have taken an FSC platoon. I would have taken, you know, you, you name the platoon, I would have taken it in a heartbeat because you just hear the horrific stories of, of lieutenants wasting away and becoming so bitter on staff. <laughs> They'd rather do anything else than be a staff officer. And did you, um, so this is, you got your platoon, this is late summer, 2009? Uh, this, is, this is middle of the summer. So it was, I want to say, before July 4th weekend, um, I was in the platoon seat already. And did you know at the time when you volunteered that, that the battalion had uh, a deployment upcoming? No. So the patch chart showed us, we didn't even get the patch. We didn't even get a look at it until like October of 09. It showed us going to Iraq, maybe. And, uh, and we were doing the heavy mission. So tanks and Bradleys fighting the heavy fight. You know, uh, there's a lot of fob and, and camp closures going on at that time in Iraq. We were really drawing down. And um, simultaneously was a surge in Afghanistan, but that was all 4th Brigade, 4th ID, the light units, 82nd, 101st, even 10th, you know, of course, 10th Mountain. Um, that was their, their beat. And we had the heavy side in Iraq or in Kuwait, you know, or in Korea. So we had no, no idea, no clue that we were going to be doing a light dismounted mission in southern Afghanistan. We had no clue until about, I want to say, 
March, March of 2010, maybe okay. February, February, March of 2010. And you find, so you find out then and that you're supposed to leave when? Uh, that we would be leaving the summer of 2010. So it would almost, it almost fit right on top of our Iraq mission. So it was just a one for one swap. And the, and the catalyst, what drove this was the, the severe um, storm, the catastrophe that happened in Haiti. If you remember that, so Haiti just got obliterated, and um, the 82nd that was supposed to go to Afghanistan diverted as their contingency operations went and did recovery down there. We fell in on their mission, replacing Fourth Brigade of the 82nd in Afghanistan, and so that switched our whole mission. So at that point, we had finished our tank and Bradley gunneries at Carson. Uh, they let us finish those up. We found out that that the mission had changed, you know, leading into gunnery. So we finished up the gunneries, put away, you know, in cold storage, the tanks and brads, and completely transitioned uh, both 122 infantry and 166 armor into, um, you know, four companies, Alpha through Delta, that were set up for combined operations instead of, you know, two organic type of um, Bradley fighting vehicle companies and then two armor companies. They cross-leveled all four of them with the, with the infantry and made them roughly look the same, at least in, in terms of manning. And did then you we went to, yeah, go ahead. Did you, and did you feel um, especially prepared for this, uh, for this deployment once you found out because you had been through infantry bullets? <laughs> Yeah, it's funny you say that. So it's it's like the tables have turned. So uh, so all throughout the train up for gunnery, my soldiers, you know, I had 15 tankers, right? And most of them in a tank platoon, like most of them aren't Joes. They're, they're NCOs and, and staff NCOs. Um, you only have like four, quote unquote, you know, junior enlisted like Joes. And um and they were so excited to train an infantryman up as an armor officer. And I wasn't the only one. Uh, John J. Moffitt uh, was over and I was in second platoon. He was in third platoon. He was also an infantryman. And he actually, he, he laughed his way through ranger schools. He, he went straight through and passed. But he also got a tank platoon just because needs of the army. We, we, just, we just didn't have any open platoon spots. And they wanted to get him into uh, the seat as quick as possible. So... Our all combined, our two platoons worth of soldiers were just elated to try and convert us from infantry to armor. And I got to tell you, I got to tell you, John, when we when you see a tank doing gunnery and it shoots heat round after heat round, sabo round, and then uh, and then the hand of God, the canister round, that troops in the open, it just wipes out a whole platoon. I mean, that's pretty convincing. It's pretty amazing. And so on the flip side of that, I said, all right, you guys got me on the tank stuff, uh, but, but I'm going to train you on the dismounted stuff. And they're like, you know, death before dismounts, one of their famous quotes, right? <laughs> uh, but I got them on the PT field. So for PT, instead of doing what they wanted to do, which was heavy lifting and lunges, so many lunges and getting on and off the tank and, um, and doing that kind of stuff, we would run to what was called gate five. Um, out at Fort Carson from our company operating facilities in the Coffs. And uh, I, I would make them just run. I would run the tanker out of them in the morning. And, um, and they hated me for it. And then they loved me for it 
when the mission switched. Because honestly, I, I think we, if we hadn't had some infantry people, some infantrymen in the ranks with the tankers, I don't know how they would have done dismounted in Afghanistan. I think it would have been a little bit rough. Okay. Rougher than it, you know, rougher than it actually turned out to be. Yeah. Sure. So when did you get on the ground in Afghanistan? And I understand you went to Kandahar province? Yeah. So we, we, we went to Manus or Manas, however you want to say it. We, we went to Manus in Kyrgyzstan and then flew right down to Kandahar. And we were boots on the ground in Kandahar, uh, I want to say, on the 11th of August, 2010. And then we did a very, very quick RSOI, you know, make sure you have the right plates, uh, make sure your gear is within standards with the, with the, um, the RC, with the regional uh, commander standards. And then within the, um, within your, obviously your unit standards, because people would like to go get, you know, cool guy gear and stuff. And then make sure your, obviously your weapon is zeroed and make sure you know how to, this is a really important one. Make sure you know how to use Oh, those IED RC defeat devices, the Thors, and then um, and then the ones in the vehicles too. Like, make sure you know how to use and operate all those because remote remote IEDs were on the rise big time. And so, like, it was really fast. It took like three, maybe four days, and that was like maybe one day of just hanging around on Kandahar on CAF, and then they shot us out to our company and platoon cops pretty quick. And were you were you replacing another unit? Yeah, so I was replacing uh, Lieutenant Jim Lazik and Sergeant First Class Frazier at Cop Brunkhorst, and they were Second Platoon Bravo Company from Two Five Zero Eight out of the Eighty Second. as Two Fury, and and they they had they had I mean that's so many I mean probably most of your stories could come for the next year from them. Uh, these guys went all over Helmand, all over RC South. Uh, and then they landed in the Argandov River Valley, and that was probably the worst of their entire tour. I mean, they were just just slinging rounds and, and duking it out with the Taliban day in, day out. Just IEDs and direct contact left and right. It was pretty pretty brutal. Yeah, you know, we um, regular listeners uh, of the Spear will, will have become quite familiar by this time with... Uh, RC South, specifically Kandahar, and even more specifically um, that part of Kandahar Province, Panjwai District, the Argandab River Valley, um, because it was it was a very, as we as the army likes to say, it was a very kinetic area um, during that kind of period of 2009, 2010, 2011. So the story you're going to share is is from very early in your deployment. So I want to ask, um, did you have a very long right seat, left seat ride with uh, these guys from the 82nd that you were re- uh, that you were replacing? Um, it was anticipated to be 15 days, and uh, I I know that's that's actually pretty long for uh, relief in place for a rip. Mm-hmm. And um, I got to know these guys so well because the air quality, the air status, actually went red and then black um, towards the end of their second week with us, and they weren't going anywhere. The rip process ended up taking almost I want to say almost a month. And then we were, our platoons were on an a extremely small platoon cop that was um, essentially occupied by force in the middle of one of the most volatile towns in Dekuche, D-E-K, um, in the Argandab. 
And um, they basically took over. One of their cops got V-bitted next door. And so they ended up occupying by force the uh, the Maliks. Um, uh, Mula, uh, Faisula was his name. Faisula's house. So he was gone to um, to Pakistan. So they just took over his compound and um, occupied it, fortified it. And it was, I mean, we had, we had guys like sleeping on top of each other. It was pretty wild. Not like not two to a cot, but it probably would have been nice if we did two to a cot. Honestly, we had guys sleeping on the ground for a while. Anybody who has uh, been through that kind of riptoa process knows, probably is familiar with this sense of showing up and feeling like you're drinking through a fire hose, just trying to learn everything about the AO. Um, and then, you know, and then you get through this kind of like moment of harmony uh, in the middle of that process, after which it starts to become a little bit tough because you feel like you've learned about, you know, for the most part, what you can from the unit that you're replacing and you have some ideas of your own. Uh, and so, I, I, you know, was there any, was it difficult having them stick around for an extra, you know, it sounds like a couple of weeks. Um, so twofold, uh, it was, we were grateful. I mean, these are these, every single one of them is a hero. They're just, they really, you know, threw their arms around us, took care of us. They knew we were like dirty tankers and, and legs and stuff, but they didn't care. They knew the mission. I mean, they had suffered some severe losses and, uh, they knew what we were in for. And then, uh, then they actually took part in some losses while we were there. So on August 22nd, um, my platoon had the only KIA in the battalion, uh, which was um, Specialist Pedro Millet. And I mean, he dismounted IED, took him out, took out um, his team leader as well. But thank God his team leader was only severely wounded and ended up pulling through um, when that was Rob Ochoa. But I mean, that was 10 days after boots on the ground in Afghanistan. And we already took a KIA and a WIA. Was this then part of the right seat, left seat? Was it a joint patrol? Did you have people from both uh, both platoons on this, on this dismounted movement? It was a day after we had started our own independent patrols. And um, so on the 21st, on the 21st of August, uh, they, they basically said, all right, you know, second platoon, Charlie Company 166, like Tyson, your platoon is certified by Jim Lazik and Sarn Frazier. Like you're as good as you're going to get. Get out there and do this patrol. We did the patrol brief. We go out there. It's great. We have, you know, three rounds of patrols that day, morning, afternoon, night. And, um, you know, found some stuff, found a weapons cache, found an, uh, an unfold, not, not a fully emplaced IED. So it was a partial build. And like, that was, you know, that was a lot. That was a lot for your first day with the training wheels off. And that was on the second day on our own. Um, while the, the 82nd is trying to like coordinate to get these guys out of the cop while the air is still, it's like amber going red. And then while it's red, it's going amber again. So they're just trying to find these windows where they can actually get guys out of there. And uh, they can't just fly them out. Um, there was no place to land in the summer because the, the Argandab river is flowing and they don't have an HLZ. It's a little tiny platoon cop inside of a Kalat village. Mm -hmm. uh, so we had to walk their patrols down to the village of Kukaran to a cop called cop Karen, which is the company commander's cop. And they had an HLZ there that they built into it, which was, you know, which is obviously where the only place in and out that we could do um, any sort of air lift. And, um, 
On the 22nd, uh, we were on our own, uh, felt pretty confident because of the previous day's, you know, success. We have our, our first squad goes out. That's, you know, almost pure infantry. That's um, Sergeant Ricuti. Um, and uh, they find like within a few minutes of leaving on this patrol, like within the first hour, they find um, completely buried and placed PMN mine connected to what turned out to be like a 35 pound jug of ammonium nitrate aluminum. And so like fully in place, you know, victim initiated or what sometimes they call victim operated IED. So like, whoa, all right, found an ID. They cordon it off. They, they exploit it to the safest amount that they can. And then we call in for EOD. My platoon, because the AO was so riddled, it was a minefield. I mean, this, yeah. this whole AO was like, it's a straight up minefield. Um, and, and particularly this, this area we called Checkpoint 16. Um, we had our own EOD team as part of my platoon attached to us. So they were on call with my platoon and, and the 82nd's platoon before me. Co-located with you? Oh, yeah, co-located. In fact, so we didn't have electricity or running water on this cop. There was a well with a goldfish in it. And then we had a Canadian, a huge Canadian generator, but no one knew how to work it uh, for several months until, until we could figure this thing out. So we, had, we actually had no power. So the only ones that had power was EOD. They had a little tiny portable generator that they would run their Cipernet stuff off of um, to send up their reports. So, um, so it worked out pretty nicely. Um, even though we were so austere, EOD really helped us in more ways than one when we needed communication connectivity. Uh, but, you know, you know, find an IED and they're, you know, EO, EODs out on site on this IED within like, you know, 40 minutes or less. Unlike, you know, you hear horror stories of people sitting in on an IED for the better part of 24 hours. Yeah. So uh, we were pretty spoiled like that. Um, so EOD gets out there and, um, or the, their EOD's on their way out there, I should say. They're on their way out there. And uh, the infantry squad, Rick's squad, has pushed over a, about an eight, nine foot mud wall. Um, they go over the wall into a what used to be a wheat field that's just completely bare because they're they're not farming it this season, and they you know they set up a perimeter and it takes you know it takes them about as much time to get EOD out to clear out to each position, set everyone in. They're doing their whole you know 360 security, and so I go out with EOD and uh, one of my uh, my third squad. Um, we get out there with Sergeant um, Staff Sergeant. Kyle Llewellyn is a squad leader and um, we get out there to assess the situation and to help, you know, fortify any of the positions, you know, what have you relieve them as need be. And how far from the cop is this? Oh my gosh. It's so close. It's so close. It's about almost a mile. It's almost a mile. Not, not quite. And the original, the original, the, the squad that went out in the first place and found the IED, what was their mission? Was this just a presence patrol? Was it looking for IEDs? What were they doing? (laughs) Oh man. Yeah. If you ever use the word presence patrol, like in in that time and place, like people's heads would explode. Like, oh, we don't do presence patrols. (laughs) Um, You always have to have a clear task and purpose. Uh, No, no, no. We would do orchard clearing missions to deny the terrain. And then our primary mission at that time was to secure the populace, secure the local populace to, you know, prevent intimidation, murdering, um, you know, illegal checkpoints, all that kind of stuff. Uh, Because like 
I mean, the Taliban was entrenched in this area. Uh, so we were, we were there to root them out, to clear, um, really to get in the orchards and deny them their weapons, caches, and, and to interdict them if possible. And then the, the mission quickly evolved to partnering with the Afghan National Security Forces to enable them to do so. And uh, that actually went better than I think almost anyone else I've talked to about partnering with the ANA and the ANP. So that was, that's a whole nother story. But those Good. guys didn't show up until the winter, though. So this whole summer, we were just on our own. Okay. So you go out with the EOD team uh, yep. to join this other squad. And then what? Uh, so uh, we, we, meet, we meet up with them. They, you know, they have it all marked off where it is, where the, where the PMN mine is. And um, I'm walking up to the, the mud wall with um, Sergeant Llewellyn, um, Sergeant um, uh, Ochoa, and um, Specialist Millet. And Specialist Millet is our point man on the patrol. So he's got the uh, gizmo, the Valen, the, the metal detector. And uh, he clears up to the wall. And then um, uh, so Millet gets up on the wall first, you know, puts his rifle up there, puts, his, the, puts the Valen on top. Hops up on the wall, grabs his Valen, reaches down and scans and puts the, he puts the gizmo, he puts the Valen back on the wall, grabs his rifle, hops down. And then from eyewitness reports, you know, from the other squad mates that are on the other side of the wall from the infantry squad, he turns around to grab his, the, the Valen from off the wall. And that's when he stepped on the mine. And, uh, that one turned out to be roughly a 50 pounder attached to a PMN mine. And um, it took out most of the, the wall around the path. It cleared about a five foot wide uh, gap in the wall, just like completely vaporized it. Um, millet was cut in half uh, from just above his, his hips and nothing, nothing existed below the hips, completely consumed by the blast. And it threw him, I want to say about 30 meters from the blast site. And um, at that time, like while he's, when, when he was stepping on the mine, um, I was pushing uh, Sergeant Ochoa's fat butt up the wall. Cause he's, he's one of my true, you know, he's one of my true through and through tankers. Like he's, He's been tanking for a while. It's taken its toll on him. So he needed some extra oomph to get him up with all his equipment up on the wall. And um, he was a little bit off center from where Millet crossed. So that's, I think, why it saved, saved him. Um, he, had his, he had his arms up on the top of the wall, but his head and the rest of his body was still on our side. So it's kind of like a shield uh, protecting him from the blast. But it still took off. Um, an index finger, fingertips from his left hand, and it broke his left arm uh, pretty, pretty cleanly, pretty, pretty graphically compound fracture. And um, the blast threw me backwards. I ended up uh, later on figuring out that that's why my L4, L5, S1 were, were cracked and herniated from the body armor smacking against one of the grape vineyards walls, um, these big, big mud walls that they used to, to grow the huge grapevines on. And then uh, one of the riflemen that was with us, um, Richard Lukish, he also, his face was in the dirt. You know, he was breathing in dirt for the next, you know, two minutes because of blast. His back was towards the wall. So he went face first into the ground when the, when the blast went off. And uh, yeah, pretty, uh, pretty crazy. Um, 
Yeah. It took us, yeah, it took us about a good 10 seconds to get our bearings. Um, you know, we knew everyone, I'm pretty sure knew it was an ID that it wasn't like an RPG or something of that nature or like a mortar round or anything like that. We were, we were pretty sure, you know, we knew what happened. And, um, you know, the immediate casualty was Sergeant Ochoa. Cause he's like right there. He's completely fully awake, conscious and like blood curdling yell as he's like holding up his hands and they're just like mangled and his like, you know, his arm, his left arm is at like a 90 degree angle almost inside the uniform. And uh, so immediately like my, my medic doc Zhang um, runs up and like starts treating him for shock and like trying to stop the bleeding and stuff. And then I hear one call out and I'm pretty sure it was specialist Cressy um, who was calling out. He's like, where's Millet? And then as soon as I heard that, as soon as I heard, where's Millet, then, you know, we're all yelling, Millet, Millet, where are you? And uh, I step over in front of the blast site so I can see through the wall and I see the dust cloud. And in it is his head is now facing towards us, um, but it's face down in the dirt. And so that's like the one time in the whole deployment where I hesitated. I just didn't know what to do because all I could see was the blast site, the crater where the IED was. And my mind could not process that the IED had gone off and there was no longer a threat in that, in that hole. Right. So I could have just, I could have, you know, low crawled through that, that area and been perfectly fine. But like something stopped me. Like I just couldn't make myself go forward. Thankfully our EOD team, they had, it was an air force team the E7 on the team is just this like grizzled veteran. It's like his 20th deployment at this point. He grabs me by the front of my, my body armor and he just pulls me through with, uh, with Doc Zhang. He has, it's, it's, it's like a crazy thing to think about. It's like something out of the comics. He's got our medic by one hand on the collar and he's got me on the other. And he just like drags us through the hole. And then as soon as we get through the hole, all three of us are running side by side up to uh, up to Millet. And, um, you know, we're, we're surrounding him um, as soon as Doc Zhang, as soon as he gets like a good handle on what happened to Millet. Like he, he's not even doing anything. There's no CPR. There's no morphine, nothing. He's just like basically performing last rites and getting the time of death and stuff um, immediately started, you know, once we get our bearings around Millet, we start calling up a nine line uh, for Sergeant Ochoa and for uh, deceased specialist Millet. And, um, you know, the mission doesn't stop, right? I mean, just because you have casualties, like you can't just freeze up. Um, there could be prime, that's, that is prime time for, you know, an attack. So both squads are pushing out to security. And what I have Sergeant Llewellyn's squad doing is they go along the wall to check for any more IDs and they find four more 50 pounders on both sides of the walls. Um, so a total, there was a total of nine IDs that day uh, while we were doing, you know, site exploitation, uh, remains recovery, um, equipment recovery, just like all the awful horrendous stuff you can imagine on top of that, like the threat is definitely still present. So pretty, pretty shitty way to, to kick off a deployment in my opinion, especially yeah. now that like 
now that like the, the 82nd has like blessed you off and the training wheels are off and then you go and like just get absolutely destroyed. Um, so then your question though was, um, you know, like did the 82nd, like what were they doing? Well, they were on QRF and as soon as the IED went off, as soon as the blast went off, these, these badasses, like I love them. Um, they were already in kit, already out the gate. And so they, they were already on scene, like right behind us, ready to do a one alpha if needed. And um, I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that. And so I guess, you know, that later that day, when you, when you get back to the cop um, and you, you, you know, I guess you're kind of processing everything that happened and realize, wow, um, we just had a really significant event. We took casualties. Um, you know, we've experienced this tragedy of losing a soldier on like day two of independent operations. Uh, are you starting to think, is it starting to set in kind of the, the, you know, that, Hey, this might be the tone of what's going to be a really tough deployment. Oh, completely. I mean, we just assumed this was going to be Groundhog's Day. Like it was going to be a fight like this and it was either us or them, you know, you know, who was going to win this fight because they're, they're placing dismounted IEDs left and right. And, and we're out there defeating them and trying to get, get the upper hand on them, which, you know, we did a few times. Um, enough to completely repel them from the AO for a good while, maybe about another two years, year and a half. Um, but no, at that, at that moment, that same day, like when we got back to the cop that afternoon, um, back to cop run course, I, I would say we weren't defeated. We were just um, scared and, and mostly angry. You know, I talked to a lot of the soldiers that evening before we went out on our night patrol because uh, patrols did not stop, not even once. Um, and it was, it was a lot of fear, but mostly wanting revenge, wanting, wanting some, sort of, some sort of payback uh, against the IED emplacers and makers in the AO. So it was definitely like everyone was getting their game face on. Um, there was no grumbling of, of quitting. Um, you know, it was everything that could be ideal in that situation. I was really impressed. Um, but that wasn't the end of it. You know, that's, it was every, and, you know, true to what I thought that day, every single day until, until about the middle of January, 2011, every single day was something, was an IED defeat, was an encounter with the Taliban, either an emplacer or an actual weapons team, um, or an HVT that was, that thought they could just pass through undetected. And like every day was something there was, you know, I have, I had both my journals out here just to like go through some of the dates and stuff. And I was just shocked by like, I would constantly comment in there that why can't we just have one day where something doesn't happen on a patrol? And uh, that's, that's the Argon Dom. You know, that's just how it is. That's, that's the beat. Yeah. You know, um, I mentioned to you when we were, when we were talking about setting this, uh, this episode up that we, we typically try to stick to kind of a formula of, of really focusing on one combat event. Um, but I mentioned to you that we were going to maybe flex a little bit with this one because, uh, your, your comment about this being kind of an everyday thing is a good segue into, uh, a second incident that happened just more than, I think a little over a week later. Is that right? Yeah. So, uh, the end of the end of August, August 30th of 2010, yeah, just, just a week and a day later, um, Chaplain Getz, Dale Getz, 
Um, he came and performed, you know, a service, a prayer service. We'd already had our memorial for, for uh, Specialist Millet. And um, he came out there just to check on us. You know, he, he came out to one of the most remote cops we had in the brigade. This is your battalion chaplain? He was our battalion chaplain, yeah. So he's just, I mean, I can't say enough good things about Dale. Um, you know, he's former enlisted, former combat arms. Uh, he He's like the people's chaplain. He's not your kind that comes out of seminary school and has these lofty ideals or anything. Like he knows what our job is and he knows what we're about. And he knows how to relate to us and how to help us process these things. And to like, you know, and then, of course, his day job is to, you know, preach the good word, of course. But, you know, he 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 always came down to our level. Either it was he'd be hanging out with the Joes or he'd come over to, to me as a platoon leader and he would really throw his arms around and say, OK, look, this is like I get it. I know the AO you're in. I know the, the space you're in. Let's talk about this. Like, let's let me help you. Let me I have, you know, 20 years of experience under my belt. Let me. Let me try and offer you something from what I've seen, either in training or in combat, what I would have done as a platoon leader. And, you know, I really, really respected him for that. And uh, he left on the 30th. He, he took uh, we, we had a new EOD team, brand spanking new Army EOD team. Uh, Sergeant West was their was their team leader. Um, and they had, you know, Sergeant Kessler, Sergeant Clements, Sergeant Infante. And um, they left our, our cop. They left Brunkhorst. Um, we cleared them out and then we, we clear out to highway one from our cop to bring them in. And then they clear themselves out back to highway one when they leave. And, um, by the time they got out of our AO, out of our whole company's AO, right before getting onto highway one, um, you know, one of those culvert IEDs, like a big, big bomber hit their, their MATV. And um, we don't know if it was because EOD had had, you know, a lot of their bang with them um, that also caused like a chain reaction that just increased the explosion or if it was just a whopper of an IED. But I can only pray that like they didn't suffer because it flipped the vehicle and like cracked it in half. And there was like nothing. There's nothing left of anything. Um for a few hours after the explosion, and that was the evening of the 30th, uh, August 2010, like you could hear some of the rounds and stuff being cooked off uh, while we like it was a joint effort, of course, between all the units in the area to try and court on that off and make sure, you know, no shenanigans happened with the, with the locals or anything. Um, but recovery was, you know, completely limited. They just just got a wrecker out there, you know, towed the thing away. Uh, there wasn't really much else to do, but no, I mean, that was, yeah, that just really sets the tone for the whole deployment. And it, um, you know, being as a platoon leader, you want to check on your guy's status. Um, the person I was most concerned with happened to be the most senior person in the platoon, which was my platoon sergeant. When you do go in and check on your soldiers, um, you know, what are you, what are your, what are your major concerns? Well, first, you know, you can't just go in and say, hey, how are you doing? You know, because I feel like it's a natural reaction for us, especially, you know, like alpha males and people in, you know, tough situations. They don't, you know, 
they either don't want to burden other people or they're uncomfortable talking about it. So they're going to say, oh, yeah, like it's, it's fine. It's good. Um, I like to go in and just, you know, like how, you know, with what limited communication we have using EOD's computer once in a while, like how are things going at home? Or, or you know, like, or you'll just talk about something, you know, kind of related to it. Like, oh, did you see what, what you know, so-and-so over in second squad was doing today? Like, oh, what a goofball. Um, you just kind of, you know, shoot the shit with them a little bit and then let things, let the mood settle a little bit. And then I would ask them questions like, you know, you know, sucks about Chaplin Getz and the guys, right? And then, you know, that would get people talking a little bit, especially when they see that you're not just like some, you know, sergeant or some lieutenant robot that's like, oh, mission first, mission first, men always, mission first. Um, you know, if they, they see your human side, if you let your human side show instead of this mask of leadership and, and responsibility, you know, that, that's, that means a lot. It does. And, uh, the, the guys will, you know, I think it was pretty homogenous, the, um, homogeneous, the, uh, the reaction across the board was just, like we, we had this awful incident. We lost one of our own on the 22nd. We had a few days of just like hard, hot August days in RC South, just, just slugging it out with the Taliban. We think we're getting the upper hand, even though fighting through all the pain of, of, of the loss of, of Millet. And then, you know, this happens. Like the chaplain comes, everyone loves him. And then, and then we lose him too. I mean, the despair, what you could, you could feel it. You could taste it. Uh, that's how strong it was. Um, I had, so at this point, I have about 32 soldiers that are in my, my platoon that are mine. And then I have some enablers. Not a single one of them could think of an instance in previous deployments that even like came close to it, to this deployment so far. Um, so the new guys, like the new guys were, we're just like, yeah, this sucks. This is, I guess this is an army combat deployment. It must suck like this for everybody. And like, I was of the same mindset, you know, it's like, well, I'm a platoon leader fighting it out with the Taliban. That's pretty standard stuff. Um, a lot of the seasoned veterans, especially the ones that were like up in RC East, um, that were in Iraq, they were like, yeah, we saw IEDs once in a while and they were like vehicle killers or we, we sh you know, did a gunfight with the Taliban up on the trails in the mountains but like nothing on this scale, nothing so like psychologically damaging as you are walking through a minefield and like trying not to get blown up. Like every step you take could be your last. You don't know. You said you were especially concerned about your platoon sergeant. So his, so, so uh, I had him from day one as a platoon leader. So he moved up from Fort Hood um, a couple weeks after I took over the platoon and then we were, we were married up as platoon leader and platoon sergeant, the entire train up, which was, you know, just, just over a year at Fort Carson, uh, we were together, uh, the entire train up, the most professional, knowledgeable, straight shooter you can imagine. Like he was everything I wanted in a platoon sergeant that you hear in the stories. Like he, he, you know, sat down, communicated clear goals. He forced me to do counseling with him. So I had to counsel him quarterly. Um, like his NCOER was legit. You know, it wasn't just like a last minute thing that I kind of threw together and then he like wrote it himself or something. 
that you hear about that I've I've seen people do. I like just the quintessential platoon leader, platoon sergeant relationship. And then we go to Afghanistan where he had never been as a, as a, as an armor, um, as a tanker. He had done multiple Iraq tours and this, like these first few days broke him and uh, he hit it pretty well. He did. He would say stuff, you know, he'd be like, oh, this is, you know, this is BS. I can't believe we're doing this. Or I wish we had tanks here, you know, like, like pretty, like stuff you'd expect someone to say. Um, but it wasn't until about a month after Chaplin gets his uh, death uh, that, that things like took a real big turn. So it was about the 22nd. So a month after Millet passed away. Uh, the 22nd of September was the first time I can remember uh, where where my platoon sergeant said, you know, I don't want to go on this patrol. And then I'd say, well, you got to go. It's like your turn. We have like a rotation set up here, you know, like we're someone's one of the top three weapons squad leader, platoon leader, platoon sergeant. Like got to go on a patrol with these guys. Got to have a senior platoon leader uh, representative out there. Right. And so he would begrudgingly go. And then like two days later, um, it was his, you know, one of his patrols, either a morning or a night patrol, I forget which, um, the patrol would come back and he, and he would have not have left. And so I'd ask, you know, Sergeant Ricuti, I'd be like, Hey, Sergeant Rick, um, what the hell happened? He was like, Oh, you know, platoon sergeant didn't go. I was like, what do you mean? Didn't go. We've been doing this for several weeks now. You know, one of us has to go with you, right? You're not going to send an E5 promotable with 10 other dudes out into combat for four plus hours in a minefield, you know, alone and unafraid. Like, I know you can do it, but we're not. And um, it was that that battle only got worse. And so it was, uh, we had, we had some mishaps. Um, we had some like issues with reporting, um, that, that really, that really mucked things up. So platoon sergeant was on uh, a patrol with our third squad again with Sergeant Llewellyn and they took contact. Well, they, they found a weapons cache and a partially emplaced ID. And then they got, they received contact. They received uh, fire, AK fire from the Taliban. And so they fired back. They shot, you know, they all got down, they, sh- they returned fire, even shot 203 rounds. And um, they actually hit one of the Taliban with the 203. And this is like at midnight. And so like this transpires, this is a significant act, right? Like that results in enemy death. And oh, by the way, there's an IED and a weapons cache. Like all the things checked on the block here. Like huge success story, I would say. They get back that night and and they had not called up any of this. They didn't call up contact. They didn't call up the IED. They didn't call up anything. Uh, platoon sergeant just brings back the patrol. And then the next day when I'm going out of patrol, he calls me on the radio. And he's like, hey, go check this place out. We did X, Y, and Z there. We did these things. And like, I just, I just left the mic, you know, silent for a little bit. I left the radio silent for a little bit as I was like putting my, my hand, my head in my hand, just like rubbing my eyes. Like, 
You did what? And like, sure enough, there's like a mangled uh, flick with like blood all over it and stuff. And, uh, and you know, the whole thing actually transpired. It, it did not, it was not a false report. Um, it was a non-existent report. So obviously the right thing to do, I, I call my exo, I call Michael Kane up. I'm like, Hey man, this is what happened. He's like, listen, you got to tell the truth. Like you got to tell, you got to tell Captain Walter Reed, you got to tell crazy horse six what happened like right away. So like not even that patrol is over yet. I call up on the radio. I relay the info and basically my world ends um, in my eyes. Um, all kinds of bad things happen. And so, uh, and so that, that misreporting on my platoon sergeant's behalf is really where the downturn went to like a full on swan dive. And so um, after we received our negative counselings and, and the punishment that accompanied it, you know, I, I walked my hours, so to speak. Um, one night in the in middle of October of 2010, so I'm doing my, my uh, part of my punishment on radio guard. Uh, I, one of us, either me or him, has to be on radio guard 24-7 and go out on patrols. Uh, so I'm on, you know, I'm just came back from patrol. It's nighttime now and I'm on, on radio guard. And um, uh, platoon sergeant is going to take out one of the squads and do a nighttime patrol, you know, and go occupy one of the orchards that's of interest, clear the NAI, and then, and then sit there for a while and just wait. And uh, incredibly boring, like nothing ever happens on the nighttime patrols because the Taliban know we own the night. We can see them through night vision and all that. So like nothing ever happens. Pretty low-key patrol. The dangerous part is getting to the spot because it's nighttime and there's still like, it's still a minefield. It's just a minefield at night. So it's, you know, it's great trying to clear, trying to use these uh, mine detectors with night vision goggles on is, is a feat that I probably could never hope to accomplish what my soldiers have done. And so I get up, I've got my like combat Crocs on and my whole uniform on and I walk outside, I got my helmet, my nods down. And sure enough, just like in any scenario, uh, they're given their mission brief because I want to listen in. I've got my nods down and turned on and I'm watching. And platoon sergeant is, uh, is standing behind him also with his nods up. And so like the only one who has his nods down is Star shower and me in this like big gaggle of people on this like little tiny uh, combat outpost. And I, um, I'm just listening in. And uh, Fro gets through his piece. He tells them where they're going. They're going, you know, whatever checkpoint, like seven or something like that. And they're going to go in this orchard, do all these things. And like, any questions? Yep, got questions about batteries. Okay, what's, you know, what's our signals for this? What, what's our contingencies for that? All right. Um, hey, platoon sergeant, uh, you're up. Like, brief your CCP plan and all that stuff. And so platoon sergeant walks up and it's like, it's like eerily quiet. Like you could hear a pin drop. And he says, I'll never forget, he'll say, listen, guys, I've got 19 and a half years in. I didn't want to be on this tour. Um, I've done my time. I've got a wife and two daughters back home, and I'm going to come back to them. He's like, I'm not going on that patrol. And I'm just like, my mouth is all the way on the ground. And I'm just like, beat red angry at what I've just heard. And so I'm looking around because I'm expecting my, my soldiers to like be like, 
you know, fist balled up, ready to throw down. Every single one of them is just like looking down at the ground, embarrassed and defeated. Like they've just been like kicked, like a puppy that's been kicked. And it just dawns on me like, no, this is their platoon sergeant. Like this is the senior NCO. This is their platoon daddy that like takes care of them. That just like threw them to the wolves and is abandoning the mission. And so no one says a thing. I give it a couple seconds and I say, hey, platoon sergeant, come over here. We got to talk. And he comes over and we have the quietest, angriest, heated, like one way conversation where I tell him like, yeah, you're not going to go out on this patrol. You're never going to go out on a patrol again. You're not going to talk to any of my soldiers and I'm going to get you the hell out of here as fast as I can. And, um, and then I proceeded to go on every single patrol uh, until um, my weapon squad leader uh, came back from R and R, but you know, we got it done. And then as soon as Sergeant Elsie got back, like, oh, it was so nice having him. He filled in as a temporary platoon sergeant. We rock and rolled. And, um, and, and how then, do you, how do you begin to uh, sort of rebuild, I guess, morale uh, in your platoon? Um, I think it, it, we were fortunate, right? It's, it's always, it always falls on coincidence. Um, we, after, after Chaplain gets his death and, and along with the, the other guys on the team, um, we were wildly successful. Uh, we didn't miss a beat. Um, we found in that span of four months, in that span of four months, we found just shy of 60 completely or almost completely emplaced IEDs well over a hundred weapons and ID materials cached. Um, and then, you know, a handful of direct uh, contact encounters with the Taliban, like just, just mission success. And then, you know, I had had so much rapport with this platoon, you know, I did the entire year long train up with them that I, I feel like I was able to fulfill my role as a fake platoon sergeant fairly well. And, um, you know, there's just no slack, really. Just, just keep up the op tempo, keep up the optimism, constant communication. I think it paid off huge dividends. So I want to ask, you mentioned um, earlier a few sort of sentiments that the platoon was feeling after these, you know, early and pretty devastating engagements. Uh, you said fear, despair revenge, a desire for revenge. And that, that one specifically, I want to ask about, because, you know, when I asked if you were doing presence patrols, you said, no, we don't do presence patrols. We had a task and a purpose. It was about protecting the populace. You specifically yeah. mentioned, um, in a counterinsurgency environment that, that you were in where it's, it can be very difficult to identify combatants from non-combatants unless they're holding a weapon. Um, and even then, is that's clearly not an indicator unless they're taking some sort of action against you with it. Right. Um, given that, 
was that did that worry you at all that there was a desire a very natural human desire for revenge when you lose somebody in your unit that you're close to lose a friend um did you have any concern about that or were you able to sort of rely on their training and professionalism to to not you know fall victim to the sort of impulses that frankly we saw a couple instances of uh in u.s wars in iraq and afghanistan Oh, yes. No. Uh, simultaneously, we had that National Guard E7 that went and murdered like several families. That In was, that area. Yeah, that was just to the north of us during that yep. tour. Yep. You know, I mean, that like that sparked protests in my AO. Um, oh, no. You know, uh, I did have concerns for some of the more seasoned soldiers. And then and the, we had like three of like three of them that I was really concerned about. And then uh, his, um, Specialist Millet's like two really good platoon mate friends. And, um, you know, I, the thought didn't cross my mind like so, you know, like right away. It was just kind of something that I just had in the back of my mind to watch for. So when I would talk to them, you know, one of the soldiers would say like, you know, today we walked by checkpoint 16. You know, we've, we've since like bulldozed it and leveled it. Um, after clearing out dozens of IEDs and uh, he, he, you know, he'd say like, oh, we, we walked by checkpoint 16 today and like made me think about Millet and remembering him. And like, I'd be like, yeah, tell me about that. You know, tell me, what do you think? Like anything, like what's on your mind? And it was always, it was always like, I, I was trying to clue into anything that would be alarming, you know, about himself or about, doing something to someone else. And it was always, you know, like good memories. Um, so one of them, you know, now Sergeant um, Isaiah Gann, um, really close with Millet. And it hit him pretty hard. And, you know, in the again, in the back of my mind, I thought maybe there's some, you know, like, is there an indicator? Is there something I should be watching for? And just not even once, like not even a single red flag popped up in my head talking to him. And I, and Gan was one of the ones I talked to, you know, several times a day, we would constantly be playing cards, you know, leading up to a patrol. We'd constantly be talking about tactics and where to go next. And um, I feel like if, if it, we hadn't been so engaged in the mission if we hadn't been so actively involved in planning every single patrol, every move we made, if we and instead, the reverse of that, if, or, or the flip side of that, the counter of that, if we were on like a big giant fob in the green zone and we took, you know, a, mat, you know, a casualty like Millet, and then we just went back to like, you know, our safe space, safe-ish space of just days of, of wasting away and going to the gym and the defect and stuff where that, where these thoughts could really eat away at you. I think then things might've actually been different. Um, but because we were just so gainfully employed uh, that these, these guys are just like consummate professionals. Uh, I didn't have a single soldier, even my, I tell you, I tell you, John, even my gunners, like my brand new soldiers that came in, um, Robert Cash, and then um, one of my older ones that was still pretty young, Josh Sears, like these two guys were my heavy gunners, you know, the 240s or sometimes they just carry out the, the, the saw when we got the, the upgrade to the saw, um, like a little mini 240. Like 
even those guys were coming to me constantly with ideas of, hey, sir, if we go to this, if we go to these four orchards, I remember we checked these three this way, but we didn't check that one and it looked pretty run down. I bet you we would find something in there. And then, and then like taking their advice and running with it and like giving them, like validating them, validating all the work that they're doing and like actually going out there and checking it. And then, you know, whether or not you find something like just having them so engaged and involved in the process, I think it really paid off huge dividends mentally and emotionally because, you know, coupled with the success, it was tied directly to the soldiers that were actually doing the mission. And so one, and again, you know, just to, just to keep going on about this, um, uh, Jacob Sanders. So he's one of my infantry dudes and he was one of the metal detector guys in a span of one month, he successfully defeated 14 actively emplaced IEDs. Like you wouldn't believe. And then found like a number of weapons caches. Um, I think he even found like a, a brand, brand new, never been fired before PKM. That was just like gorgeous condition. And, um, and uh, we wrote him up and he's a private first class, wrote him up for um, a bronze star uh, for service. I don't know for, um, it's not for valor. It's not for service. It's like for action, I guess. Maybe I guess it is for service. Um, and we put in what he had done, you know, we wrote up the whole, the whole thing, like you wouldn't end a tour award, but it was in like an impact bronze star essentially, essentially. And like he got it awarded, you know, a few weeks later and, and that kind of stuff, you know, I ended up putting, I ended up putting in seven soldiers in my platoon alone for bronze stars, not as end of tour awards. And I want to say, I want to say Sanders got his, I think Owens got his, and then five more got rolled up as end of tour awards anyway, because it was just, it just takes so long to get, you know, a commanding general to sign an award like that. Yeah. Um, but that kind of stuff, that kind of stuff, that kind of recognition as quickly as you possibly can, even on the spot, uh, really goes a long way to validate people's efforts. And, and you know, that tour really showed me like that matters. Like the, maybe the awards themselves don't matter, but your effort to recognize them does. So I kind of want to wrap up with one final question. You mentioned in the first story uh, that you told, um, you mentioned a moment, you said it was the only moment that you sort of hesitated. Um, is that something that you are aware of now or became aware of later on kind of reflecting back on that deployment? Or were you aware of it, you know, then that day when you got back to the cop, were you aware that you had hesitated and, and had to kind of put some thought into how not to do that? Oh, I mean, as soon as, uh, as soon as the EOD team leader grabbed me by the collar, um, like, like a good NTO does. Yeah. Yeah. It was like a wave of embarrassment and reconciliation while I was running up to millet, like right then and there, I had like the come to Jesus moment, like never going to let that happen again. I'm going to try and keep my head on as straight as possible, be more aware of my surroundings and like try and get my brain to process these things faster. And um, yeah, sure, sure enough, um, we had Carlotta Gall and, and Joe Silva you know, come do a turn, um, New York Times come do a turn at our cop and they were gonna write a nice piece on us. And Joe Silva ended up getting off the cleared path 
and uh, stepped on an IED that almost took out the entire squad. Um, luckily, it only took off his legs uh, because the actual jug that it was daisy chained to multiple jugs only partially blew. So it only the PMM mine and the, and the jug only took off um, one above and one below his knee. And then it, it, uh, it cut off the deck cord to the other daisy chain explosives. Um, but, but right then and there, like no hesitation, you know, I really, I really, um, acted quickly to get to him to get, you know, get the situation under control. There's no hesitation. So those, I definitely remember the feeling of, uh, of hesitating in the blast site and just like not being able to think past. It was like, it was like the wall was still there and I couldn't get through it. It was, haven't experienced anything else like that since. Yeah. Well, Tyson, thank you uh, so much for joining and, and taking so much time to, uh, to share the stories. It's, it's, um, it's a tough way to start a deployment, um, but I really appreciate it. I think there's some really meaningful lessons that can be derived from it that hopefully listeners will, uh, I'm confident listeners will appreciate. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, John. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.